Welcome to Still at Large, a series looking at unsolved British murders. Each episode will examine an individual murder or a series of killings that despite the best efforts of the various police forces involved have, for whatever reason, never been solved. In most cases, the perpetrator is probably still at large. The subject matter is not for young children or those with a fragile disposition. Listener discretion is advised. Episode 2. The Disappearance of April Fab. 8th of April, 1969. Part 1. April Fab was born on the 22nd of April, 1955, in Metton, Norfolk. She lived at number three council houses with her father, Albert, her mother, Olive, and her sister, Diane. She had another sister, Pamela, who lived with her husband and young son on Cromer Road in Routon. Metton is a small enclave of houses barely large enough to be classed as a village and not far from Cromer, a small fishing town on the North Norfolk coast. A pleasant rural part of Norfolk, it is, like the vast majority of England, a network of villages and narrow winding roads. It was along one of these winding roads where April Fab, almost 14 years old, her whole life ahead of her, would vanish, never to be seen again. April 1969 was a fine spring. Balmy weather and sunshine would mark the Easter holidays. If Paradise is Half as Nice by Amen Corner was number one in the charts, it was a particular favourite of April's, as was their lead singer, Andy Fairweather Lowe. All normal and healthy interests and tastes for a teenage girl. The school holidays were halfway through, and April was busy enjoying her holiday time, relaxing, socialising and planning a gift for her brother-in-law's birthday. April is described as being a shy girl, but friendly and sensible. She was a caring, self-sufficient young woman, able to make her own clothes, a reliable and regular babysitter for a local family. Like many rural children, April spent a lot of her time cycling around the local lanes and roads to see friends, family and just explore the local area. She was well liked and attended the local church regularly with her family. April was a typical, happy, healthy, balanced and sensible girl loved by her family and friends. Former head of Norfolk CID, Maurice Mawson, wrote this of April. April Fab may have been described as a child, but she was approaching young womanhood. A blue-eyed, fair-haired, well-developed young girl with a pretty oval face, her pleasantly shy manner was appropriate to a country girl intent on her own interests, displaying a natural, quiet companionship and a diffidence to strangers traits that would later occupy the minds of many who had never met her. One of her interests was in making her own clothes, at which she was rather talented. She also had a naturally caring personality towards animals. April was, it can be seen, a girl with her whole life ahead of her with a personality that those who knew her cherished. On the day she went missing, April rose around 10am and began making plans for the week whilst doing some washing up. 
Her mother returned to their home at around 10.15. They spoke briefly before Mrs Fab collected some dusters, leaving once more for the local rectory where she was cleaning. April and her mother had lunch together upon her return a few hours later. She told her mother that she was going to call her friend Gillian to make arrangements for a visit to Norwich the next day. April had made the same plans with her friend Susan, with whom she occasionally babysat for Farmer Harrison. Susan's summer job at a hotel in Cromer, however, prevented her from taking up the plans she and April had had. In the late 1960s, most houses in rural areas were without a telephone in the house, so April took her bicycle to a nearby phone box and called Gillian from there. Arrangements made and confirmed, April arrived home no more than ten minutes later, happier than she had been following the disappointment from the news that Susan could not accompany her. April made the decision to take a pack of ten players' weight cigarettes and a handkerchief to her brother-in-law in Roughton, a familiar journey April would have made as a regular part of seeing her family members, a journey that would not have concerned her or her mother. Prior to leaving, April changed out of a pair of brown slacks into a wine-coloured skirt and, unusually it seems, white knee-length socks. With this she wore a green jumper and wooden-soled shoes with brass buckles. Her hair was tied up with a brown crinkly ribbon. It was normal for April to wear a little lipstick when visiting her sister, and today was no different. April collected the gifts, placing the cigarettes in the folds of the handkerchief, and placed them in a brown paper bag. From the table, she took fivepence halfpenny. April and her mum then discussed if her mother was going to go with her, but Mrs Fab had some sewing to do. April asked, if she would need a coat, but her mother didn't think it would be necessary as it was such a warm day. April then left after calling out Cherry-O. April's mother watched her take her bicycle from the garage and set off. The time was between two and ten past two. A mere one hundred yards into her journey, April stopped to talk to some friends who were in a field where a local farmer kept his donkey. This field was known locally as the donkey field. She had, it seems, chosen a quiet route for her journey, a narrow country road called Back Lane. Her choice may have been influenced by a sweet shop en route and the pennies she had with her. She spent around 10 minutes with her friends and the donkey before telling them she was on her way to her sister's house. Just after 2pm, Farmer Harrison, driving a Land Rover, saw April riding her distinctive blue and white bicycle along Ralton Road, Metton, in the direction of Ralton. At the time, she was on the wrong side of the road. Given the rural nature of the place and the volume of traffic at the time, considerably less than today, this would not have been cause for concern. This was, however, the last confirmed sighting of April Fab. During the investigation, Police and Farmer Harrison reenacted his journey, and it is apparent that he would have been at the location where he saw her at six minutes past two. At around 2.15pm, three surveyors from the Ordnance Survey saw April's bicycle lying in a field on the Metton to Ralton Road as they passed in a van. It was just a few hundred yards from where she had last been seen. 
Within a time frame of little more than a few minutes, April had disappeared. At 3pm, David Empson was driving his brown Vauxhall Viva towards Metton on the Chroma Road. He was with his mother, who, from the passenger seat, saw the bicycle laying in the field. They interrupted their journey by turning left off the Chroma Road at Pillarbox Corner, then left again into Back Lane to examine the find. They stopped in Back Lane approximately near to where they had seen it, but it was not possible to see the bike directly from the road, as it was the other side of a small embankment. David climbed over it and crossed the freshly ploughed field to look at the bike. He then returned to his mother, where they discussed what they should do. It was agreed that they should take the bicycle to the local police station and hand it in. Duly, David went back across the field, picked up the bike and put it in his car, an action he was later to publicly regret. They took the bike to the police house at Roughton and handed it over to the care of PC Chiddick. PC Chiddick took the bike and placed it in his garage. The significance of the find was, at this point, unknown. David Empson suggested that it was possibly stolen, a perfectly acceptable line of thought given what was known at the time. On inspecting the bicycle, they found a paper bag containing a handkerchief, ten players' weight cigarettes and five pence halfpenny in a white saddlebag. PC Chiddick telephoned the details through to the main station in Cromer. It was not until 8.45pm that concern for April began to surface. She had not returned home, and her mother had, until then, assumed that she was still at her sister's. As neither family had private telephones, it was impossible for them to ring and check. Night was coming, and April's bike had no lights. She was also afraid of the dark. Olive Fab cycled to her daughter's house, hoping that her youngest would be there. Sadly, she was not. Alarm started to build, and on her journey back to her house, Olive met her husband, Albert. She explained the situation with as much as she knew, that April was not home, and that she had not arrived at her sister's. Albert Fab immediately went to the rectory and began calling around. She was not at the hospital. Her friends had last seen her about two o'clock in the afternoon. At 10pm, the police were called in Cromer. PC Chiddick took the call. During the course of the call, where her father described her and her bicycle, PC Chiddick realised who the owner of the bicycle that sat in his garage was. The beginning of the police investigation into the disappearance of April Fab was finally underway. Constable Chiddick informed his section sergeant, Sergeant Francis, appraising him fully of all the information they had to hand, including the location of the bicycle that was obviously April's. Sergeant Francis, in turn, informed Divisional Headquarters in North Waltham and Force Headquarters in Norwich. Detectives and uniformed officers interviewed the Fab family. They visited the location where the bicycle was found on Back Lane and searched the road and hedgerows by torchlight. Eventually they stopped and waited for the dawn to bring daylight. In the early hours of Tuesday the 9th of April, Head of Norfolk CID, Detective Chief Superintendent Reg Lester, was called to the case. As head of the CID, the Criminal Investigation Department, he would be answering all questions from the media, making the decisions about the investigation and reporting directly to the Chief Constable. This was, and still is, standard practice in the case of an unsolved murder. The first questions were, who took her? Was she dead? 
The first is still unanswered, and sadly the second was assumed reasonably soon after her abduction, although no one could be sure. An RAF helicopter was used on the first day to search the area immediately surrounding where April's bicycle had been found. Officers on the ground undertook a thorough search by hand, and slowly people within the vicinity began to come forward. An elderly couple had been parked in a lay-by on the other side of the field between the period of April's last sighting and the discovery of her bike. From their statements, it is clear that they did not hear or see anything suspicious at the time, but it is also possible that they may have been dozing in the warm spring afternoon sunshine. Other leads developed too. It was claimed that she was seen on the 345 train from Cromer to Norwich on the afternoon she disappeared. The driver of that train seemed to remember a girl matching her description getting on that train as well. Another train driver said he had seen a girl of her description standing on the Norwich platform of North Waltham Station at 6.15pm. Would a shy, quiet country girl change plans radically and go off on a journey without telling anyone? It was out of character, and after much police investigation involving questioning hundreds of passengers, backed up with television appeals, out of the question. Another witness claimed to have been approached by April in Victoria bus station in London. The girl asked him for a shilling. The witness in question was the driver of the bus from Norwich to London. The request for money was unlike any behaviour April had exhibited before, and following inquiries, this lead was ruled out. Shortly afterwards, two lady residents in Raunton, from two separate locations, reported hearing a scream or shriek shortly before 11pm on the evening April disappeared. Both women were rural folk and were used to the nighttime noises of the countryside. Both were adamant that it was not a fox or an owl or any of the other curious but natural noises that populate the night. Neither woman reported hearing any vehicle associated with the scream. Police focus turned to the bicycle. Detective Sergeant Dick Brass undertook the examination of it. It was well looked after, looked new, and was generally smart. The only damage that could be seen was to the bell on the handlebars, which was bent slightly, and the damage was most likely caused from it being thrown into the field from the top of the small embankment at the field edge. The position of the bicycle had been roughly six feet from the edge of the field, meaning that whoever had thrown it there, the conditions in the field were unsuitable for it having been rolled there from the bank, must have been quite physically strong. Whatever had happened, it was clear that the contents of the saddlebag were not of interest to the person who had thrown the bicycle, and they, it can logically be assumed, abducted April. Suspicions of a traffic accident were ruled out, as there was neither damage to the bike or the telltale debris from a collision. The next step was to check for fingerprints. D.S. Brass carried out a thorough and methodical examination of the bicycle. It resulted in only one serviceable print being found on the handlebars. Following comparisons with April's from items at her home, it was ruled out as hers. The next person to have their fingerprints checked against it was Dave Empson, the man who had found the bike and taken it to the police. Although this print matched, and the only footprints in the field where the bike was thrown were Dave Empson's, there was doubt over his involvement, but we'll come back to Dave Empson later. The primary search continued for a week. Hundreds of people, civilians, police officers and RAF personnel combed the countryside, 
Derelict buildings, farm outhouses, woods, rivers, ponds and lakes were searched. The coastline too was examined, but there was no sign of April anywhere. Investigations such as this often attract the attentions of the well-meaning but misguided to share their thoughts either with the police or, more distressingly, with the family involved. This case was no different. One of the first was a man who had been going house to house making his own inquiries. This intrusion into the already disturbed piece of Norfolk soon caught the attention of the investigating team. He was a holiday maker in the area at the time, and had taken it upon himself to look for her. Taken into custody and questioned at length, he was soon ruled out when his whereabouts at the time of the disappearance could be verified as having been in an amusement arcade. Not before, however, his hotel room in Cromer had been thoroughly searched. There were to be many such instances of people thinking they were helping when all they were doing was diverting attention from the real job in hand. Time was passing quickly, and although there had been some leads, they were all proven to be false. Although this was not an ideal situation, it did confirm that April was not within two miles of her last sighting. At the time in Norfolk, pipelines were being laid for North Sea gas pipes, but not within the search area. Could it be that April had been buried somewhere? It is possible, but there were no clues pointing in that direction. Further appeals to the public were made, and a young woman, very similar in appearance to April, came forward. She had been on the trains at the times when people had reported seeing April. The sightings were another disappointing lead. As time went on, the search area spread out to cover more villages and more houses. Residents of the nearby village of Felbrigg mustered a substantial sum of money as a reward for information leading to the whereabouts of April. Still no answers came. The media kept the story in the public eye, kept the public interested in the case, and by extension engaged with the search. Reports of sightings were made in places as far apart as Norwich and Hampshire. There were even reports from overseas. Sadly, they could not be corroborated and remained as unconfirmed single sightings, joining the doubtful sightings in London and on the trains. Reports from the public continued to be received. Often these were in the form of people having had dreams about her, or from psychics who claimed to have some special ability of being able to locate her. All were wrong. Direct appeals to April were made by her parents to return home. DCS Reg Lester said in one of his appeals that she should come forward without hesitation if she should be in a position to do so. A stern admonishment to a teenage girl, yet with an ominous overtone. On April the 13th, her father said, If it is found that she has run away, then we shall have to accept it. But I have not changed my mind that if she has gone away, it is not of her own free will. She was picked up right enough, and I think it was two people myself. Anyone with a car had to deal with April and a bicycle. Few people disagreed with her father's appraisal of the situation. Her mother refused to accept that any harm had befallen her daughter, saying, We will wake up immediately if April should come back, and that it would be the most wonderful thing I can think of. Men known to have a predilection for indecent behaviour were questioned, their alibis checked, and where necessary searches were carried out on their cars and homes. Those men included the previously convicted and those whom were the subject of rumour and innuendo due to their behaviour. All of these leads proved fruitless. Norfolk and the area around Cromer was awash with police activity. The public were on heightened alert of people acting suspiciously. 
So it came as quite a surprise when a man was seen trying to entice two young girls into his car in Cromer. He was, however, ruled out as a suspect eventually, and bound over to keep the peace by a local magistrate. Police then began to examine all those who were in the area at the time of April's disappearance. Were they all motorists? Who were they? There were several crucial vehicles to consider. The van containing the Ordnance Survey workers who saw April's bicycle in the field at about 2.15, and the Land Rover on the Cromer Road who had seen April on her bike. This vehicle was heading in the same direction as April, on the same route as April. An elderly couple and their car seen on the day were identified as the dozing picnickers and eliminated. There were two other vehicles in the area at the time, both seen by the driver of the Land Rover. Neither has ever been traced. There was a vague description of a grey car seen in Metton, and a red Mini with the newly introduced reflective number plates. The direction and route these cars took is not known. There were two other vehicles seen in the area that are worthy of note. One was a van with two men in it who had been seen trying to sell carpets. This is sometimes still regarded as a suspect vehicle, despite the van and its occupants having been traced and completely eliminated. The other van, a scruffy black Morris, was seen driving erratically through Metton. This vehicle was to lead to the identification of a major suspect but also an elimination, although doubts about that suspect continue to linger. The scruffy black van was traced and the owner was, at the time in question, in prison for other offences. However, it was found that he was only a part owner despite being the registered keeper. The other part owner was a known criminal. His description matched that of the driver. He had been witnessed by a builder who had almost collided with the Tatty Morris on the afternoon of the 8th the day April went missing. A shopkeeper gave the description of a man who tried to change a number of sixpences into paper money. This description matched the driver too. He was taken into custody and questioned at length. A petty crook with previous convictions for burglary, he was known to be less than helpful when being questioned by the police. This time, however, he was more willing to help. Yes, he had been in the area, Yes, he had almost collided with the builder's van. Yes, he had tried to change sixpences. No, he wouldn't say where they came from. No, he didn't know anything about the missing girl. No, he wouldn't reveal the identity of the man who was with him. Forensic examination of the van found nothing to connect April with it. It seemed that they had been in the area, breaking into isolated telephone boxes, stealing the money, and had made an erratic escape after being seen. His accomplice remains unknown to this day. Doubts persist as to their involvement. The coverage of the case continued to be high profile, and many drivers keen to help came forward with the details of their journeys in and around Norfolk on the day in question. The movements of locals were carefully examined. Farmer Harrison had travelled a long back lane where April went missing at around half past two after the bike had been thrown in the field. Indeed, he went past where it was dumped, and past the donkey field where he saw his daughter, but did not see April. Had he, he would have recognised her as she was both a friend of his daughter's and babysat for him on occasion. 
Traffic in 1969 was sparse compared to today. Life was simpler and entertainment for children in rural areas was as sparse as the traffic. These two overlapped quite neatly for police when it was discovered that several young boys had been spotting cars and taking their registration numbers. In all, 406 numbers had been recorded, although some of them had been recorded incorrectly, and others it seems were pure invention to increase the numbers taken. This tally of registration numbers would prove invaluable, as some of the records were on the fateful day and covered the period from 1.45pm onwards. What was important in these records was not just what was recorded, but what was not. The red mini with the new plates would have been a good one to log, but it was curiously absent from the list. During investigations, police can be very thorough and acts of public good spiritedness can be examined extremely closely, with almost hostile questioning used to entirely eliminate the good citizen or unmask the criminal masquerading as the good citizen. Police attention would turn, once again, to Dave Empson, the man who took April's bicycle to the police house. His act of public spiritedness wasn't the reason he became the focus of the investigation for a while. A witness reported seeing him in the area at around ten past two, a time material to April's disappearance. Were this sighting confirmed, it would place him in the right location at the right time, but the carefully kept numbers of passing cars nor any cars he had access to were found in the logs. However, the timeline that Dave Empson told the police did not fit with the description given by a witness, which did seem to fit him. Someone was either mistaken or being deliberately deceitful. The police investigation into Dave Empson was exhaustive and exhausting for him. He was eventually cleared of any involvement through corroborating witnesses and till receipts that firmly placed him away from the area and confirmed his timeline of the day. Sadly, despite being cleared by the police, rumour and innuendo continued. The turn of events that led him to becoming a suspect would colour his outlook for the rest of his life. In August 1969, with coverage and police searches waning, DCS Leicester took the task force back over the same ground, literally. They searched the areas that had already been searched. They re-examined the testimonies of witnesses. They re-interviewed. Reg Lester gave a press conference, something he was well used to with this case, having given twice weekly conferences from the start. In his statement, he said, No one appears to have seen this girl talking to anyone. No one appears to have seen her getting into a car. But someone, somewhere, must know something and we ask that person to come forward. He was, obviously, hoping to prick the conscience of someone enough to come forward. No one did. In the months since April's disappearance, 1,971 statements had been taken. 419 house-to-house -house questionnaires had been completed. An area of two to three miles was searched, and regular appeals have been made in the press and on TV, all without any information as to what exactly had happened or who precisely had taken April. Norfolk would be rocked on the 2nd of September when another child, 11-year-old Stephen Newing, 
would vanish from outside his home in Fakenham, just 20 or so miles from Metton. And that's where we conclude part one of the disappearance of April Fab in 1969. If you have any information about this crime or any other case featured on Still at Large, please make contact with the relevant police force. Links will be provided on the pages for this episode. Some music was by Duke Deck and online music AI at dukedeck.com. Still at Large was written, produced and presented by Desmond J. Brambley and is a tiny yellow dinosaur media production.